0: Welcome to Great Minds with Lost and Found, the podcast that connects people and reimagines systems to improve mental health for youth and young adults. I'm your host, Joel Kaskinen. Lost and Found is a comprehensive nonprofit organization that aims to do more to eliminate suicide for youth and young adults in the United States. Now that you know who we are and what we're all about, let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Great Minds with Lost and Found. I'm your host, Joel Kaskinen, and today's conversation is with Tanisha Islam, the Executive Director of South Dakota Voices for Peace. Welcome, Tanisha. How are you? I'm
1: doing well. Thank you. Good. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. I want to just start by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit further and your work with South Dakota Voices for Peace and kind of what it is that you do, what your organization does, and then how it connects to our work in suicide prevention.
1: Yeah. Well, that's... Like the whole conversation, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in a nutshell. <exactly>. <laughs> um, so I am an immigration attorney. I and I also did civil rights advocacy work when at right after law school, I went to law school in St. Paul, um, Hamlin University. So I've kind of brought all those worlds together, including my master's degree and my passions, and really created South Dakota Voices for Peace. And that was really a beautiful organic story in a very dark time. Uh-huh. Um Really, we were worried about what we were seeing at, at South Dakota Legislature in 2017. A lot of bills and resolutions attacking immigrant, refugee, and Muslim communities. You know, those are my clients, that's my family, that's my faith group. And so it was very personal. Um, but I knew I had the skill sets to do something more than just be worried and angry and sad at home by myself. <laughs> So I, we just organically organized people to go to peer. And what I mean is impacted communities. So immigrants, refugees, and Muslims, we have never organized that way in South Dakota, as far as I've been told. And so when we showed up in peer, it was very impactful because refugees and Muslims don't go to peer, um, you know, to engage with legislators, but we were able to do that in the and, you know, and all of the allies came together too. It was just very organic. You know, we use social media advocacy and media advocacy to get the word out on what was going on in peer and people just started to show up. So we defeated um, 14, 12 out of 14 bills over two years. So 2017 to 2019. And I really like talking a little bit about the bills because it sounds awesome, you know, to... Defeat eighty four percent of the bills. Is yeah, that okay if I talk yeah, about it a little? Yeah, of course. Just to paint a picture, um, and I think a lot of us, a lot of our groups, are facing this kind of vitriol in our state through through our decision makers, which is really uh, adds another level of how problematic all this rhetoric is, um, because they're trying to legislate against us in some way, um, and so we had. One resolution that wanted to declare the religion of Islam, a faith that I practice, a religion of terrorism. Like, I want people to understand, like, they wanted that to be on the books. Um, we had a bill that would have banned, made it illegal for undocumented students in South Dakota to access higher education. Um, and so we defeated that one, too. So, just to paint a picture of how vitriolic this was. You know, victories are really great, but the journey to get there was really grueling, very taxing. Um, We knew after legislative session that we just needed to do more. And that's really when we started seeing the the previous administration's policy take effect, such as the Muslim travel ban, again, directly, you know, targeting my community, my family. Um, And then we saw the end of DACA, the Dreamers program was announced. And then we also started um, to see families being separated at the border, children from their biological parents. Um, So I organized those protests, but, you know, once those protests were done and we created a space for solidarity, the next question was, now what? You know, we had to do more with that momentum and that's really been the fuel for where Voices for Peace is today. So out of all of those things, we have free immigration legal services now for unaccompanied minors. So that's all of the kids that are coming to our southern border by themselves. 100- so cool. Yeah. All of them are in immigration court. And there was no legal access for them until we started our program. I mean, they could hire an attorney, but that's very costly. Yeah. Um. There was no free access. So we're really proud of being able to the only one in the state doing that work. I'm really proud of that. Um, And then we've done a lot of, you know, trainings. We created the Cohorts for Courage program. And then we also have a bystander to upstander training that we do. And the silver lining around COVID has been, we have created this really formidable outreach team. Um, We started that team in educating multilingual communities on access to COVID vaccines and, you know, myth-busting around the vaccine itself and providing basic information because there's a really a lack of access to information for multilingual communities yeah so and now today you know we're working on medicaid expansion so again educating multilingual communities on what is medicaid what is medicaid expansion and how can you i get involved in expanding in south dakota Wow. Yeah. So that's everything in a nutshell. That's I feel
0: so, like. Well, I mean, like really impressive work, and I love that you said that you wanted to do more. You used that phrase because that's the phrase that we use with Lost and Found. Mm-hmm. Is we want to do more yeah. to pre- to prevent suicide. So I love that you used that phrase. Mm-hmm. So kind of tie that in. Obviously, all of those w- pieces of your work impact suicide prevention because. All of these bills, all of this vitriol, all of these, you know, uh, situations that are facing your communities are risk factors for suicide. So how does that all kind of connect for you?
1: Yeah. You know, when I think about how vulnerable our our legal clients are, for example, um, probably 95% of our clients are undocumented, right? So their access to financial means, I mean, it's unlawful for them to work. Right. So, knowing as an attorney, I have to inform them of that, that you're committing a crime by working, but I understand you have to work. So, if you do it, you just need to let me know so I can figure out how to best represent you through your case. Um, So, just to even think about criminalizing working, you know, for people who need money to live, how do you find an apartment? How do you find somewhere to live? Um, You know, in addition to unaccompanied minors. But if you think about it just for a second, you know, they're fleeing home country for a reason, Mm -hmm. you know, and some of the reasons can be very traumatic. Some of the reasons could be to reunite with a parent, but who is already here in the United States, but even that journey is so traumatic and the trauma that these kids go through. Once they come to the border, Mm -hmm. they are put in detention centers for 20, 30, 40 days before we can, you know, the government can find someone um, to release the child to after background checks and all that process. So the other group of clients that we serve are actually survivors of violence. And that's where I see this coming up more, I think, in terms of trauma and access to mental health resources in our community, um, which I think there's a severe lack um, just because there's such a great need right, and the lack of free mental health services. I'm just starting to learn more more about this space as it relates to our clients. Um, But again, our clients can't make money. And if they do, it's pretty minimal. um, And they don't have insurance. And mental health for them is kind of the last thing that they're thinking about. But we see in our office when we're interacting with our clients how there's a great need for it. So, we're always trying to reach out to social workers and mental health providers that we know who would be willing to do some pro bono stuff, you know, just meet with clients and so on. So, it's, I mean, the more vulnerable you are, the more of an issue it becomes, right? Access to these services. And we're still trying to figure out how to get it for us who can afford it, Mm -hmm. you know, and have to be on a wait list because. We need more mental health professionals in our community. So there's just a lot of layers um, to access. Yeah.
0: Well, that was the perfect segue because I was going to follow this up with a question about access. Um, So you do provide some financial assistance, you know these services are free mm-hmm. for your clients. And so this podcast series, um, we are exploring the seven strategies for suicide prevention mm-hmm. um, that is laid out by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And one of those seven strategies is strengthening economic supports mm-hmm. as a way to prevent suicide. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're doing just that. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit further? I know that you have already kind of shared a little sure. bit of what that looks like, but Um, you know, in terms of economic supports, other than financial assistance or, you know, providing free services, is there other things that you're doing or is it just that or walk me through that process?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what we do is just provide access to information at this point, you know, would love to be able to hire a team of social workers and mental health providers. We actually, because of COVID, it really exposed, The need for just basic necessities for our clients. And again, um, 90% of our clients don't speak English as their primary language, and some don't know English at all. So when you add those layers, right, to access issues, um, we just, there were no translations of information. I mean, the services were there, but the communities didn't know because they didn't have in language materials. So I would say that's another way that we're contributing to, you know, economic stability because we provide all of those services for free. I mean, we're really lucky to be able to get grant money. We actually got CDC grant money oh, wow. through community wow. catalysts. Um, for our COVID work that we did, but the value of just, you know, we always talk about on our team about how information is autonomy Mm -hmm. because when you don't have information, you're kind of held prisoner to whoever's telling you whatever they're telling you. Um, so when you don't have accurate information, I think that's a, that's a real social determinant of health. I really have been exploring, you know, social determinants of health outside of what we normally think, you know, just like it's not just about blood pressure and mm-hmm. and being obese or, you know, having diabetes or whatever those other health risk factors are, but really thinking about access, economic stability, social justice, um, you know, and how all of those impact our mental health. And where we think we are, where we think we belong, how we're going to get the services that we need to be able to build a stable and successful path to life.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. It sounds like you're doing really impactful work. I, I mean, I knew the basics, but like to dive deep with. Yeah.
1: You, well, this, this really podcast cool. has made me think of our work so differently. Yeah. You know, we don't necessarily, we're like you guys, we have our blinders on, we're in our lane, kind of going 100 miles per hour. And then when I get an opportunity to reflect like this, it's been really good to think about how how we are improving mental health through access, not just access to legal services, yeah. but just basic information. Yeah.
0: I love that you're thinking of uh, determinants of health through a different lens too, mm-hmm. because I feel like we do that with suicide prevention. And obviously you're doing that in your work too. I think a lot of people probably do that in their spheres, but it's not talked about widely. Right. Right. And I think that's really cool to see is, you know, like we're all coming together here to figure out ways to better impact our communities and better serve our people.
1: Yeah.
0: But we're not talking about it. And that, you know, that's why we started the podcast is, you know, it's, it's all about connecting people and reimagining the systems that we have in place to better serve our youth and young adults.
1: Yeah. And you know, for nonprofits for, for us, it's about getting the funding that we need so we can fully serve the clients that we have. Um, And, you know, when I moved to Sioux Falls in 2012, I received a Bush Fellowship through the Bush Foundation. And my whole project was around access to legal services. And then I really went down this path of how not having access to legal services is a real determinant of health also because yeah. it creates so much stress um usually there's trauma involved in why you need a lawyer right usually that's a domestic violence survivor or someone else has, who has faced a crime or your children are being taken away from you or you're losing your house you know those are very when we talk about basic necessities and not being able to defend yourself and having those things either you know people like don't like to pay lawyers i say people don't like to pay lawyers to be lawyers but we really are that can of food on a food shelf yeah. you know we're providing that sustenance that stability for the clients that we serve so really just like you said reimagining the conversation and how we present our work to the community
0: That's so cool. I would have never thought about it in that way Uh had you not just presented it to me and probably you wouldn't have thought it if I hadn't used, you know, the same language that I just used. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool that we're connecting here. Um, Speaking of connections, I want to ask a little bit further. You know, we've we've been talking about economic stability and suicide. I want to talk maybe connections specifically to the Muslim community and, you know, other marginalized populations. Uh, Currently we're going through major uprisings in our country when it comes to social justice. What other work can we be doing, whether it's Mm -hmm. through legal services, mental health provisions, or, you know, just us as individuals, I guess, what connections do you see from your lens? Oh
1: gosh, there's so much, right? I think for me, um, because I work with survivors of violence the majority of those survivors are domestic violence survivors. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I've realized is because of our lack of sur- access to services, um, survivors go to where they go for counseling, which is usually mm-hmm. a religious leader or a yeah. worship center. And those folks are not trained mm-hmm. to provide the advice we need them to provide. Right? So I, we are part of the South Dakota Network Against Family Violence and Sexual Assault. Yeah. So they're a network of shelters and counselors and service providers to survivors of violence, specifically here in South Dakota. And I've brought this issue up you know, to the coalitions and to think about how do we make it safer for people to talk about mental health with whoever they trust? Mm-hmm. And if that trusted person in this scenario is a religious leader, how do we train them and how to identify mental health issues and know where the resources are in the community. Because unfortunately, story after story after story in our in our office is, well, I went to my priest, pastor, imam, we haven't had a rabbi situation yet. Um, and they told me just to go back and work it out because the Bible says, the holy book says, you know, you should go back and work it out. And then we see the client spiral, you know, into wheel of power and all of that stuff. (laughs) Um, And I'm not equipped to, you know, I'm not trained to be a mental health counselor, but I can see it. Um, And so we need to figure out a way uh, to educate our cultural communities where this is just not talked about at all. I mean, we're not even there. Like, I can't, sometimes if I say, hey, do you want a counselor? I can see a client shut down and say, well, I don't need that. You know, and so for us to be able to coach and say, well, actually, they could teach you some coping skills and so on and so forth. So really some basic education to service providers and I would say in religious leaders specifically, because that's what our ethnic communities have in town. Um, they may not trust the institutions that are here for those services, right or wrong, doesn't matter. They're not using them. And so figuring out where they are going and how to equip those people with the right information has been kind of heavy on my mind lately
0: finding out where they're going and equipping those people with information. I mean, that ties literally Mm -hmm. perfectly into the work that we do with lust and found training advocates, you know, like we need more people in this world to be doing that. And we can't just expect that it's going to be us or it's going to be parents and teachers. Like we have to find out where people are going, you know, these trusted individuals that people are seeking.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, So the next question I have for you is in your opinion, um, in the economic challenges that may, or are there economic challenges that may contribute to suicide risk related to income inequality? Um, you know, we're talking about economic supports. We're talking about free services and access and all of that equity. Um, are there services here, um, you know, as related to that, um, specifically to, you know, poverty and, um, injustice and, um, you know, just furthered marginalized communities. I, I guess I, w- I want to talk through you, you've used the word vulnerable a few times, and I want to talk through that to make sure that like, we can provide resources and support services to people who are the most vulnerable, you know, the yeah. most at, at risk.
1: Well, I'd love to think about it more through a socioeconomic lens first, right? When you look at Sioux Falls, the middle class is shrinking, right? We have people at the top of the scale and people at the bottom of the scale. If we look at how Sioux Falls is developing economically, that is what is going to continue to happen because... Even though it sounds great to have jobs at $21 an hour when I'm used to minimum wage yeah. being like yeah. $5.55 in my day, um, it sounds like so much money, but those those folks, if they worked full time, would still be under the poverty guidelines if they were a family of four. Right. And so when we think of economic inequality, that's a conversation I'd love to see happening at the top levels of city government, at yeah. county, at state, right? And I
0: kind of figured you were gonna say that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it is a it is a big concern. And I for running for office, I did learn a lot about that. And I don't know if people are having that conversation. Yeah, totally. Um and so it but it needs to be had because that is it's all like a domino effect, right? Like you can push any domino in this pattern and it's all gonna fall yeah right to the same place and so we need to figure out top level and when i think of an issue and this is how voices operates too is we're thinking about how do we create social change yeah. right this is the marathon for us um We need to work top-down, and what I mean by that is like policy advocacy and talking to legislators and decision-makers about these issues, and then we need to work bottom-up too, you know, creating that grassroots education, mobilization, um, solidarity, and meet in the middle, because you can't have social change if just one thing is happening and not the other, Um, and that's from my master's background is where I got that. I didn't make that up myself.
0: (laughs) That's not opinion. Yeah,
1: that's just a theory, <laughs> just a theory of social change. Um, and so you know when we think about providing service, right why why do nonprofits exist
0: to create betterment for their community?
1: Yeah, I mean it's filling a gap yeah. that our government couldn't yeah, right And we can get into a debate on government's role. But essentially, that's what it is. You know, the government has the money. Like, we've seen that with COVID relief funds to Absolutely. our state. Like, I feel like gazillions of dollars have come into our state. Yes. And we don't know where the money went. You know, there's a couple of programs that I know they, like, hurriedly put together because they needed to get the money out by December. Like, there was a broadband program, free broadband, mm-hmm. across the state. The application was out for two months, and they got, like, 500 applications where we know there's like thousands of people who could have used that program yeah. right so again like if if a decision maker was thinking about that domino effect on how providing broadband would increase access to so many things for our communities right for me it's always about increasing access. Um, so then when we're talking bottom up when it comes to in this scenario, I would say nonprofits roles, Um, one thing I've been asking a lot to different people is, do we have a community map of all of our resources? And I know there was something happening at a Dakota Wesleyan. They were trying to do like a nonprofit mapping of services in the area. I'll need to follow back up with him on that. But we don't even know. You know, I'm curious how many people know about Lost and Found. I know about Lost and Found for several reasons. A lot of my friends are there. And I know the great work you guys are doing, but who who else, who doesn't know that needs to know? Just among service providers, right? There's no, there seems to be not that much, I know for a fact, there's not collaboration amongst the same sector of organizations, if you will. And so on a grassroots level, we really, as leaders in this space, need to figure out how we bring our service providers together. Yeah. Um. One thing I am excited about that the state is um kind of unrolling is the community health worker program. And so, again, that's because of COVID relief money and all this money that's coming in. The the vision is to have a community health worker at every nonprofit right in our state so that they can guide clients to where they need to go. Yeah. And it's an amazing vision. Um, and we're going to benefit for it. We just got approved for a community health worker at Voices.
0: That's
1: so cool. Yeah. So be- Thank you. It's huge because at, at one point, we could only provide legal services, yeah. right? And when we saw our client, we knew they needed so much more, but we didn't have the capacity to give uh, them more. But now we will. Like, so if someone needs... Emergency dental care, like a community health worker will be able to help them. Someone needs, if someone needs a ride to counseling service, the community health worker can take them. So we're really excited about how that's going to change the landscape of access, right? Because at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. Like if we all work in our silos, like what's the point, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's really why we wanted to start these conversations and start this podcast. Mm-hmm. Is We need to be connecting with other entities and we need to stop siloing as individual organizations. Yeah. We, we do ultimately all share the same vision as nonprofits and we're bettering our communities and we're filling gaps that are needed. And so how do we work together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. I think there's movement, there's different ways that the community is thinking about that. I think, honestly, the silver lining to COVID has been we've really recognized where the gaps are, you know, and what we can do better. And I hope that will just make our community more connected so the people who need the services have have the access that they deserve.
0: Definitely. So beyond what you've done for Voices, are you aware of other solutions that are being implemented. Maybe it's in our state, maybe it's in Sioux Falls specifically, um, that are strengthening economic support. Um, uh, you know, like obviously it's not just you who's doing this work. It's yeah. not just survivors joining for hope. Um Bradhurst was on our podcast last mm. episode. Um so it's not just the you too. Are you aware of other yeah. support structures and um organizations that are implementing this work that you you know you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I just love the model at Sioux Falls Thrive um, and have yeah. seen that grow since they started. Um, and for those who don't know, Sioux Falls Thrive was really tasked with thinking about um, access to economic stability from cradle to career. Yeah. Right. And it was kind of, I don't remember the whole process, but all the city entities were involved and figured saying like, this is what we need to do. Yeah. And you know, even with our work, we know that the the best and almost only way to get into communities is to go there. They're not coming to us. You know, they're not, oftentimes I get phone calls about how can I diversify my board and how can I diversify my staff? And I I say, well, what are you doing in those communities? And they're like, oh, well, you know, there's our website and we have social media and all in English. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, how do they know what you're doing? Like, they need to see you, you know, going, and that's really the model Sioux Falls is using, neighborhood by neighborhood. And I am so excited to see, I mean, they started in one neighborhood, um, the Riverside neighborhood, they're moving into their second neighborhood this fall. And I'm just really excited to see the impact of that work, because that, that's the hard work about community outreach is going into communities and building that trust. And we all benefit from that. All of our nonprofits will benefit from that. If, you know, someone like Sioux Falls Drive can create that platform where, you know, maybe you guys can show up one Tuesday at their kids link program, and then we can show up another week. And, and that's what, what I feel that they're doing. I don't know for sure if that's the direction that they're going, but it's really going to be a game changer in terms of access to communities, yeah. access to our communities so we can get them more access to the services that they need.
0: Definitely. No, I just, uh, so I knew of them, you know, a little bit. I'm not connected like deeply with them, but I've known of them for a little bit. And, um, I love that you are articulating this so well because just their name to me stands out yeah. so so prominently. You know, mm-hmm. Sioux Falls thrive. They mm-hmm. are building resilient communities. They are building thriving communities for us here in mm-hmm. our city. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're doing it by going neighbor to neighborhood to neighborhood mm-hmm. and connecting people with access, you know? And so that's I, like, I just love their name and their yeah. mission. Yeah. Um. Even if that's really all I know about them, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know a ton, like I'm not deeply connected, but like to me as a mental health worker, mm-hmm. I think about that and I'm like, that's exactly what I, I'm trying to do. And what we're trying to do here is to create thriving communities. It's yeah. exactly what you're trying to do with yeah. Voices for Peace, yeah. you know? Yeah. I just love it. Um. So totally switching gears here, What's something that you've learned in your life that you wish everyone understood? And this can be mental health related. This can be (laughs) related to economic instability or support. This can be related to your work as an attorney, just literally anything. Because, you know, my belief is that knowledge creates power and creates autonomy and creates responsibility and... You know, like we learn through that and we gain valuable perspectives from this. And so if there's something that you've learned yeah. that you'd like to share with someone, <laughs> what, what should I the, pick? What is
1: that? <laughs> um, honestly, I'll share two things. Uh I have two boys. My husband is a doctor. I run a nonprofit. We're very busy. And there's this pressure, right? Um, To make sure you're, you're taking time for yourself. There's mm-hmm. this pressure um to have breaks to have vacations I don't believe in work-life balance I think that creates this really unrealistic pressure that people are trying to attain and it actually makes it more stressful because you're like I have no work-life balance yeah but I really um for me it's just become prioritizing you know how do I prioritize in the moment in the month in the week in the day um and of course, my kids are at the top. My husband and kids are at the top, but everything else kind of ebbs and flows. Um, but you'd be happy to know that I've seen in my staff, and this is these are all things I didn't have when I was young. I've worked in nonprofits for over 20 years. Yes. And so I think when you have really bad experiences, hopefully you can be like, I'm never going to do that to yes. I ever have a staff. Um, and so we've actually implemented um kind of a mental health day just for the month of July everyone can take their friday off and in that way you're I for me I'm like gosh I should take a vacation day but oh my gosh I have so much to do but now we're saying you can't there's no work you can do unless you have to yeah. like if we have court deadlines and so on the will sure, that sure. that's
0: day. different though yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: so I think just thinking about you know as a boss um of and having nine employees, thinking about how I can make sure that when most of our folks are really young, kind of right out of college, how I can make sure they're ingraining into their work life um, habits, this idea of taking a day off for themselves. So we're going to try it out and see how it goes. Um, And the other thing, you know, it's funny, I just read a quote about how As I get older, I appreciate my elders more and like what they've gone through and what they've paved. And I see a lot of activity happening in our community by young people, which is super encouraging, but they're not, there seems to be a barrier between young and I don't know where you cut off that age to that next generation Um, because a lot of the work Seems to like start from zero every time. But if you don't know the history of how that work has progressed in the community, it's easy to fall into those traps. So I think, you know, when you're thinking about starting something new or you, you know, have a passion about something, try to find who those organizations are are already doing that. If you have something unique to add to that, that's much easier than trying to build your own thing. But For people who have been systemically non-dominant, finding our spaces, you know, in a dominant society is also really important. So it's never like black and white, of course, Um, but creating creating spaces for ourselves. I was just at a convening where they said, you know, it's not about building power. It's actually about taking our power back because it's been taken away from us, you know, and how do we create those spaces where we can make sure people are engaged and know where their power is and redirect energy, you know, if it's kind of not the right focus to come back to that.
0: I love that. Um, something that you said just jogged my memory of, um, a conversation I had with Carla White last night, actually, she said, um, that a piece of advice that she likes to give young people specifically is to uh, interact, meet, engage, become friends with, your elders, mm-hmm. and she, oh, made, she did. Yeah, and she she and say, made
1: this joke.
0: <laughs> she made this joke because they have more money and better health. <laughs> but then followed it up by saying, yeah. "Really, they have a different perspective, and they have a vast, like, and varying life experience than someone. You know, even my age at twenty, almost nine. You know, like, it, we just have totally different yeah. experiences and different perspectives to share, and so." She said like to, you know, my young gals on the soccer team, she was like, befriend and engage your elders, you know, find people that are older than you because you're going to learn from them. And then from learning from them, you can also learn the gaps that are needed to be filled, Mm -hmm. that maybe you have more energy and a different perspective to provide, but also that you can take something that they can provide you in return, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I just, I love that you also just said that because it um, really is all about perspectives and it really is all about working together. You know, it's it's, to your earlier point, we we can't work in silos, like, you know.
1: And I think sometimes I... I just this is happening for me organically but I would say for elders to also connect with younger people mm-hmm. to see where their passions are you know and how we can channel them to be successful um, and you know have I've learned a lot from my young staff you know and I hope they've learned from me you'd yeah, have to ask yeah. them. But it really is, if the goal is to build resilient communities, right? As long as the goal is the same, there's different ways of getting there. Yeah. But I think just having, having communication, it just, in this moment, I mean, I know we're in a really hyper sensitive moment in Sioux Falls specifically and in our country as a whole. It seems like there's a division in ages, um, and there's people who have poured their blood, sweat, and tears into this work, um, people who are just getting started, and it becomes really incumbent on everyone to know where we're all at, yeah. um, if the goal is resiliency and change and building community. Definitely.
0: Oh, well, we'll have to connect over Carlos shared. This
1: later, <laughs> yeah, but, exactly.
0: Um, Kind of wrapping things up here, we've just got a couple more minutes and a couple more things to say, but is there anything that you want to share, whether it's about your work or questions of us at Lust and Found as it relates to suicide prevention, economic supports, marginalized communities, mm-hmm. building resilient communities? Is there anything that you have that we haven't discussed today mm-hmm. that maybe you thought we were going to talk about on the show or you know that you had prepared or maybe just something that's on your heart right now?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I've been thinking about my personal mental health journey also, and I don't talk about it much, but I do once in a while and just in our family and our nuclear family, we're very open about that with each other. You know, we're always talking about, I frame it as successes and challenges. Tell me about your successes yeah. and challenges today. And if there are some challenges, how are you going to make it better for tomorrow? You know, I never had those conversations when yeah. I was younger with my parents, And there's a lot of layers to that too, because my parents are immigrants. We don't talk about mental health. We don't figure out different ways to talk about it. Um, There's a lot of trauma. My parents are survivors of the Civil War. They've never talked. I mean, there's just like so many layers, right? Um, But COVID really impacted my then six year old um, in a way I I never imagined. Mm. And so I just remember one day he had. You know, we took him out of daycare, preschool when things shut down for the school district in March of 2020 because I was home with my oldest anyways. I didn't realize the impact that was going to have on him because we didn't really he didn't get to say goodbye, you know, to his friends and teachers. Um, Unfortunately, like we had some older kids in the neighborhood that were including him and that really impacted him, too. So I was like, okay, we're going back to daycare. Well, he was so excited to go back. But half of his friends weren't there. So that was like a huge letdown all over again. And so he had a ton of issues in kindergarten, things I didn't know how to parent. Um, and there was a moment where he, you know, it was after the winter break and we were going to school the next day after the break. And he said, Mom, I don't think I can make it another day. And to hear that from a six-year-old and, like, it's heartbreaking. yeah, and yeah. to, like, think of what that means, like, what is he trying to tell me? And luckily, I was just like, you know what? I'm not equipped to help him right now. Like, I don't know what else to do other than hold him. Yeah. But he needs more than that. You know, and I think as parents, sometimes we think we know all the answers for our kids. They're our kids. But really taking a step, talking to my husband and saying, I think we need to take this to the next level and find a counselor for him and for us to know how to parent him. Yeah. You know, my oldest was very different from my youngest. So I think when it comes to mental health, there's so many ways that it shows up in families and creating that space um, early on for kids to share their emotions and tell us what they're excited about, what they're frustrated about, you know, I think I've come a long way in the last two years and thinking about parenting and how to make sure that my kids are mentally and emotionally healthy, not just physically eating their fruits and vegetables and, you know, being social and active. So I was just kind of thinking of that yeah. as we were talking.
0: I love that, especially because I know your family and I love your voice. And <laughs> you know so, my voice. <laughs> yeah. So thinking about them and just, oh, of course, I like can't even imagine being in your shoes and hearing that from them too. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, simply can't imagine. But I I can't personally imagine raising a child in this world. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. It's a topic for a, a different podcast.
1: <laughs> different podcast. All right.
0: I'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs> but anywho... Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story and sharing your work and connecting on, you know, mental health and economic, um, instabilities and, you know, just sharing your perspective. I think, you know, that's really what it's all about is connecting people in order to do better work and to do more, you know, using that same phrase that we've said a couple of times now to do more. And so I just, I thank you. I value you. And I
1: just so appreciate you being here today. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for this really easy conversation to have about <laughs> hard topics. Thanks for creating the space to talk about it. I think it's just really important. It is. It is yeah, important. thanks for all your work too.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review Great Minds wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information about Lost and Found, go to resilienttoday.org. That's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-T-O-D-A-Y.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Resilient Today. Until next time, do more and stay well.